Hello and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil and in this episode I'm continuing my series on the Roman kings with a chat about Rome's fourth king, Ancus Marcius. This series started with an examination of the foundation of Rome myth and so I started with Romulus. Next up was Numa Pompilius and then Tullus Hostilius. I've tried to make them all standalone episodes meaning you don't need to have listened to them before this one but I will say that you'll probably get a bit more out of it if you give them a go. After all, what sort of a podcaster would I be if I didn't nudge you into listening to more of my podcasts? Of course, if you have listened to my previous podcasts on the Kings of Rome, you'll know what's coming next. My caveat on the sources. As I mentioned, I covered this in the Foundation of Rome episode, but it'd be wrong for me to just point in that direction and not say anything about them. The normal suspects are present, that is to say, Livy and Dionysus of Halicarnassus, but I'm also able to bring Plutarch and Sallust into the mix this time. These are all 1st century BCE and CE historians, which means we don't have anything contemporary surviving. In fact, there's the argument that the lack of Rome's history isn't because it's all gone missing, but instead that it wasn't really covered much before the end of the 3rd century BCE. But any good student of history knows that contemporary doesn't mean true. For example, I recorded a podcast all about Thucydides and his account of the Sicilian expedition, which is heavily biased, contradicts itself, and plays fully into his own world view. In some ways, it's even more excusable when there are several centuries between yourself and the event. Certainly, a theme I'll come to is how the events in Ancus's reign echo the themes which the historians were well-tuned into in their own time. The sources are a good guide to what is largely considered unlikely events. The fun is trying to work out where the truth might be, and if absent, what image was being projected by Rome as to its early history. In fairness to the sources, they often question the events themselves, and we'll see almost immediately how Dionysus enjoys stirring things up a bit with some speculation. In the episodes on Numa and Tullus, I started with the selection of the new king, but for Ancus, I'm going to start things off with an event prior to him succeeding to the throne, the death of Tullus, the previous king. Though Tullus was later held up as a paradigm of Roman military virtue, he was the king after all who expanded and gave Rome some military glory. His end was less spectacular. I covered this more fully in my episode on him, but in short, he seems to have abandoned the traditional religious framework in Rome, and instead he chose superstition and what were deemed as non-Roman religious practices. My own view on this, and one I gave in the podcast that I did on him, was that Rome had experienced tension between what I termed the traditional religion and something new. This coincided with the movement of people from Alba, which had been defeated by Rome and brought into the city. And I appreciate I'm speculating here, but perhaps the influx of new and possibly different religious observances into Rome changed or shifted the balance of the power and religion in Rome, and Tullus was somehow caught up in all of this. Both Livy and Dionysus chide Tullus for all of this, but the most demonstrable critic was the god Jupiter, who apparently sent a thunderbolt in Tullus's direction, or at least at his house. Either way, the result was the same. Tullus died either killed outright, or because his house was set ablaze. Though Livy and Dionysus both concluded that his death was down to his impiety and meted out by Jupiter, Dionysus offered an alternative. 
this wasn't Jupiter in the heavens with a thunderbolt. It was Ancus in the living room with something sharp and pointy. But why link Ancus to all of this? To try and get a grip on this, I'm going to have to consider two things. You'll probably be familiar from any cop show. Motive and opportunity. In the case of motive, there are a few options. Dionysus commented that Ancus thought Tullus was going to pass the crown on to his kids, thus setting up the sort of monarchy which we might be more familiar with, as opposed to the electic monarch which Rome had. The cynic in me senses this was a justification which is more about chiming with the audience of the time. The idea of an individual seizing in power and then setting up a dynasty in the 1st century BCE was, as you imagine, quite a hot topic. It's also a topic explored with a later king, and I'll continue this spoiler-free. So it is plausible, but I'm not so sure I can buy the altruistic motive which would fund such an action on Ancus's part. So, I'll move to another possibility. Was it because of the religious instability? Both Livy and Dionysus wrote about this. I don't think this would have sat in isolation. Religion and politics were entwined. The influx of Latins into the city may have caused the change in their power page, which I mentioned, and this might have crystallised in both a religious and political sense. Ancus was therefore hitting the reset button to keep those in power, well, in power. But there's also another motive, and one easily as old as Rome's Seven Hills. Revenge. To understand this particular motive, we'll move from the usual suspects of Livy and Dionysus and turn to Plutarch. Plutarch lived in the 1st and 2nd century CE. Among the surviving copies of his works are the lives of famous ancient Romans and Greeks, and one such work was devoted to Numa, Rome's second king, and this included a discussion about how many kids Numa had, and even who he had them with. Despite all the confusion, one child is named, a daughter called Pompilia, and she was married to a man called Marcius, most likely out of gratitude because his father, also called Marcius, well, Marcius Senior had been instrumental in helping Numa get the crown. I'll avoid a tangent on a tangent here, and I explain it in my episode on Numa, but to be brief, Numa wasn't initially interested in being king of Rome. He hadn't even been there. When Numa died then, Marcus Senior had tried in vain to become the next king through whatever the political process was. We're not quite sure, but it seems to be some sort of nomination, then election, and then confirmation by the people. His failed attempt resulted in him starving himself to death. Therefore, we are left with Marcius, Junior, Pompilia, and the child Ancus. In the context of motive, here we have Ancus, aggrieved that his grandfather had failed to become king and died as a result. Perhaps another myth had, had Marcius killed or made to starve himself. Perhaps it was because he genuinely felt that humiliated. Either way, the setup here is a grandson who felt that his lineage had been cheated from power in some way. Grandsons avenging their grandfathers for power grabs isn't even a new narrative, but obviously it's quite niche. Think of Romulus, whose rise to fame involved him doing exactly that, seizing power from Amulius to avenge his grandfather, Numitor. It could have been a worry that Tullus was setting up a dynasty, a religious split, a revenge, or, or all of these. Whichever way you look at it, Ancus is well placed to have done the deed. Not that Dionysus believed it, which is odd given that he was the source who described in detail how Ancus all went about it. Nope, despite giving a scenario somewhat more plausible than Jupiter with a thunderbolt, Dionysus concluded that it was much more likely that Jupiter was in fact the realistic option. I wonder at this point 
if Dionysus isn't having a bit of fun at the expense of his audience. Though Dionysus did establish himself as Rome, he was a Greek, and if nothing else, Greeks like reminded Romans that they weren't really all that. If you read Dionysus on the founding of Rome, it's pretty much Greeks everywhere, and in some cases, even after the founding of Rome. The fun that Dionysus has is to give a perfectly reasonable option and then retract it because Romans always went with the bigger one. Could their king have been killed as a result of some mortal skullduggery? Nah, of course not. It had to be a god and the king of the gods. By contrasting the two options, the facade is made to seem exactly that. It could even be a comment which references an even more famous instance of a cover-up. The official line for the death of Romulus was that he was taken up to the heavens in a storm and absolutely not killed by a faction within the Senate. And if you listen to my episode on the foundation of Rome, you'll know that instance even involved a senator reporting that he'd met the ghost of Romulus who told him that he was okay in the heavens, so you know, don't worry about anything, it's all fine over here. Perhaps then Dionysus might be, just might be, poking fun at the Roman inclination to gloss over the less civilised events in their past. Back to the murder. I've covered the likely motives Ancus had, but what about the opportunity? According to Dionysus, Ancus was gifted the chance. The murder took place when Tullus performed some religious rites privately at his home. Only a few of his friends and family knew where he was. Ancus seems to have belonged to the former. Dionysus wrote that he was a close confidant of Tullus. If this is true, and after all why not, then it makes the act more treacherous. Little wonder then that the Romans might not want to believe this and instead go with the avenging god. According to Dionysus, Ancus entered the family home with a few colleagues and killed everyone inside. Keen to cover his tracks, he then set the house on fire and started the rumour that it had been struck by lightning as divine vengeance. Ancus therefore had a selection of motives and the perfect opportunity to do the deed. As much fun as it is to play detective, I should underline that this is all speculation. After all, it relies on sifting evidence from sources who may have simply been telling a good story. But if I did suspend my disbelief, it's by no means a scenario which seem out of kilter with Roman politics, or indeed politics of that time. After all, the political murder of the leader of a Roman state by a close friend because he was worried about him becoming a king is not exactly beyond the realms of possibility et to Ancus, and all that sort of thing. This brings me then to where I'd normally start. Following an interregnum after Tullus's death, whether accidental or, well, we, we've discussed that, Ancus succeeded to the throne in 642 BCE. Dionysus aligns his accession to the throne with the second year of the 35th Olympiad, which actually places it at 638 BCE. The reign of Ancus, which lasted until 617 BCE, was a mixed affair, and by this I mean it occupied a space after the peaceful and introspective Numa and the bellicose Tullus. I'm going to sum him up at the end, but the theme I want you to consider in this podcast is that of retrospective construction, and don't worry too much, I'll unwrap this all later on. Broadly speaking, Ancus had three main areas to his reign, and these are external conflict, construction in Rome, and construction outside of it. I'll start with the external conflict, and this initially involved the Latins. Now this might seem odd, after all, Rome spoke Latin, and we're in that territory, namely of Latium. So what's the problem here? Well to answer that, I'm going to need to explain a bit about the geography around Rome at this time. Rome sat on the southern bank of the Tiber. To the north, you're heading into Etruscan territory, 
and you might remember cities such as Vey, which I've mentioned in previous podcasts. To the north, east and east, there were the Sabines, and to the east, the Equians. Here you also have the Apennine mountain range, which formed a sort of barrier, as mountains tend to do. The south of the Tiber was Latium, where the Latin tribes were conveniently based. I use the word tribe very loosely here. For the most part, it gives a sense of a shared culture, but with distinct and separate cities. Sometimes they're at war with each other, and sometimes they're at peace. Under the previous king, Tullus, Rome had actually taken on its parent city, Alba, which was a Latin city, and defeated it. Periodically, these tribes would be in conflict and in peace with Rome. Though Rome grew to dominate the Italian peninsula, it wasn't a case that a defeated city would forever stay loyal. With each city and region, there was a mutual buy-in. Rome had to be both dominant and scary enough not to mess with, but not push the city too hard. When this balance failed, there could be repercussions. Ironically, in the 1st century BC, the social war was fought by Rome with its allies because they wanted more rights. The sources comment that a couple of Latin cities felt this new king, being a grandson of Numa, was about to follow his reign and mimic it in that there would be very little military activity and it would be more of a diplomatic approach adopted by him. Presumably, they didn't believe he'd killed the previous king and burn his house down. The Latin response was couched in that well-known activity, cattle raids and general mischief. Rome's response was to take the town of Politorium and transfer its inhabitants back to Rome as they had done with Alba. To accommodate them, anchors set on them on the Aventine Hill and they would join with people from Telenae and Ficana. Not done with just the Latins, anchors fought with the Sabines in Vey and Etruscan city. He also marched against the Volsci who were a tribe south of Latium. In short, he was particularly busy on the military front. Ancus is presented as an able military commander. His piety to the religion Numa had installed in Rome, which was subverted apparently by Tullus, is made explicit as well. Perhaps as a result of this, we have a contradiction in the sources. If you listen to the episode on Numa, you might remember a ritual he was said to have established about how you declare war to ensure the gods are on your side. I won't recount it here, Safe to say, it was quite lengthy and involved a priest visiting the territory of the potential adversary and making oaths. Livy states that it was Ancus who created this rite. Dionysus had attributed it to Numa. What's possible, either Ancus developed this rite and added his own stamp, or it's been wrongly attributed to either king. It does feel more at home with Ancus. After all, Numa was famously against military conflict, so why develop a ritual for it? Well, I suppose the counter to that might be that having a process, war could be more easily avoided. Numa, after all, had a belligerent Roman populace to govern. A lengthy ritual, which only a priest could undertake, meant that war wasn't an option which could be easily declared. Numa had metaphorically put the safety on. What is more certain that was Ancus was associated with a couple of structures back at Rome. But before I get to that, I've got an advert from a fellow podcaster for you. Hi there, I'm Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, a scrumptious podcast about ancient gastronomy. If you like food, history, you want to know about ancient recipes, unknown herbs and long-lost spices, this is the podcast for you. We are releasing episodes fortnightly on a Friday morning, so tune in to find the new episodes on Acast or iTunes or any other podcast platform out there. I would like also to add that I have a Patreon page, The Delicious Legacy, 
where you can subscribe for recipes, photographs, videos, and many, many other goodies. Thank you. Okay, back to those structures I was talking about. The first was a bridge, apparently the first one built in Rome, and this connected to the Janiculum Hill, which is the other side of the Tiber. The rationale behind it was to deny it being used by an enemy invading force. If you remember when the Sabines invaded Rome during Romulus's reign, they stormed one of the hills. So presumably making sure these hills couldn't be accessed by an invading force was a pretty good idea. And in fact, Rome's hills occasionally jut above the main narrative of Rome's early history. It was after all hills which started the whole Rome thing off. Right at the start, the Palatine and Avatine hills had been used by Romulus and Remus respectively to compete as to who could spot the most birds and therefore claim to found the city. If we step outside the bubble of the myth, there's an argument that Rome was founded by a group of settlers on different hills who eventually merged. If we look at the mythology of Rome's foundation development, this does resonate somewhat, as at various points the narrative pauses to tell us who'd been allotted to which hill. You could even repurpose the myth of Romulus and Remus as a skirmish between the two occupants of different hills. Remember that Remus had arranged his brother by mocking the defences he dug on the Palatine by leaping over them. Could it be, then, that this was originally an attempt by a force led by Remus to attack and take Romulus's hill? Speculation aside, the second structure I'm going to talk about was located not on a hill, but under it. Well, under it, sort of. Following the war with the Latins, Rome experienced an early bout of crime and general shenanigans. Now, given the original settlers of Rome are described by Livy as chaps who were largely dubious in character, I don't think this is entirely fair. But in any case, it's Livy who comments that Ancus built Rome its first prison. I say built because, surprise, surprise, there's a debate as to what the prison was and whether it was built by Ancus at all. To understand this further, I'll need to explain what this prison looked like by the time of the 1st century BCE. Luckily, Sallust, a Roman historian at that time, can step in, and I quote, There is a place called the Tullianum, about 12 feet below the surface of the ground. It is enclosed on all sides by walls, and above it is a chamber with a vaulted roof of stone. Neglect, darkness, and stench make it hideous and fearsome to behold. What Sallust is describing here is a structure formed of two separate sections. The upper became known as the Casa, and the lower was a Tullianum, and access between the two was through a hole in the floor, or the ceiling, depending which one you're in. In the medieval period, it became known as the Mamertine prison, and today the Church of St. Joseph of the Carpenters stands above it. The Tullianum is small, around 7 metres in diameter, and about 2 metres high. Originally, it's thought to have been circular, but this was changed at a later date. To start with, then, we must abandon the idea of some grand complex, if anything, it was a holding cell, and later on in its history, it apparently held such famous characters as St. Janus and St. Peter. And the latter is strongly associated with the site. If you visit today, which thankfully you can, you'll be directed to where he may have sat, and even the famous spring of St. Peter. The story goes that St. Peter performed a miracle by creating a spring in the Tullianum and baptising his fellow prisoners. At best, this is only partly correct, because there was a spring there, but this predated St. Peter by several centuries, and was possibly the whole reason behind its original function. The theory goes that the original Tullianum was a cistern, or religious building, which later had the casa added above it, probably around the 2nd or 1st century BCE. The cistern was then converted into a holding cell, which is what it's now famous for. I should mention, though, that there are arguments which see the casa built first, 
and then the Tullianum dug at a later date. My own somewhat limited view of this is that common sense suggests the Tullianum was there first, and in the context of religious structure with a casa above it added sometime later. Whilst reading this, I found a paper which tried to give some accurate dates to all of this, and it did so by running tests on the stones used in the Tullianum and assessing the design of the original structure. What resulted was a contradiction. The paper concluded that the design of the Tullianum matched that of a cistern design which predated the 6th century BCE, and thus could have sat within Ancus's reign. The downside was that the stones used were of a type not introduced to Rome much before the 4th century BCE. It's possible that Tullianum was refurbished with newer stone, but without a wider analysis of the material, we are left in the dark, which I suppose is where you'd expect it to be in a dungeon or prison. There is an upside, though, and a rather unusual one at that. During excavation work, they found a lemon peel, which dated to the Augustan period, and apparently this is the earliest evidence of lemons in Rome. So if nothing, you can take that lemon-related fact with you. Ancus wasn't just associated with buildings inside the city. He was also linked to the building of Rome's first port, Ostia, which was 15 miles or so to the west of Rome, at the point where the Tiber met the sea. Ostia can be visited today, and if you have, you'll notice how dry your feet are, and that's because the modern coastline is further west. The modern airport of Rome, the Fumicio, would have been firmly underwater back in the day. Now with the Tullianum, I had the problem of retrospectively working backwards from a later historical record of it. With Ostia, a similar dynamic is in play, as much of the ancient site dates to centuries after the original site was built. The original Ostia was formed of a harbour basin just on the southern bank of the entrance to the Tiber, and the facilities were set up nearby. Its position at the mouth of the river is given as the origin of its name, as Ostia apparently came from mouth. In the later periods, Ostia grew. In the 3rd century BCE, it was primarily a naval base. In 267 BCE, it even had a quista, a Roman official who looked after a fleet base there. The military nature of the port changed gradually into that of commerce. In the 2nd century BCE, it started to import grain and became a vital source for supplying Rome with this from Egypt and Africa. As with ports today, the problem was of silting, and this started to affect it. One paper I read estimated that the original harbour basin had been 6 metres deep, and by the 1st century BCE, this had been reduced to just 90 centimetres. This made it near impossible to use by the ships of the time. Ships had to be unloaded at sea with rafts, or similar vessels were able then to dock. Some smaller ships were still able to sail up the Tiber, but what was in place doesn't seem to have been in the style of what we think of in the context of good old-fashioned Roman efficiency. A new facility was built by the Emperor Claudius in 42 CE, and a few kilometres to the north, and this involved a new basin being dug out with curved moles and even a lighthouse. Trajan took this a step further and built another basin in 106 CE, the work lasting several years, as you might imagine. Once they'd finished the basin, Ostia, as in the city or town, was given a fresh lick of paint by Hadrian. Much like the Tullianum, we have successive characters being involved with increasingly later dates. But what was here to link it to a king in the 7th century BCE? In short, nothing. There's little evidence of a port here much before the 4th century BCE, which is when the oldest building, the Castrum, was built. The reason for a lack of activity before this time is that it likely just wasn't needed. The argument goes that Rome up until this point had done quite well with the ports to the south, 
Rome itself may have had a small-scale facility with the ships able to sail up the Tiber and unload more or less in the city, but it just didn't need anything that substantial until it started to grow. However, the anchors was responsible for Ostia was affirmed by Livy, Cicero and Strabo, amongst others. It's easy to think why. The port gave Rome a powerful military and commercial voice. Since Rome had always been great, then it followed that Ostia must have existed in some form from Rome's early days. As I mentioned in the episode on Rome's foundation, it seems that Rome started to firm up the history of itself in the 3rd century BCE. If Ostia represented a proud emblem, and by all accounts it was, then why wouldn't the Romans think of it as something which had been created much earlier? And here's where I want to sum up some of the problems around Ancus and the retrospective construction I mentioned earlier. Previous kings had the paradox of less tangible associations which made them seem more real. Romulus, well, we all know about him, Numa had his religion, and Tullus had various wars in the famous story of the Harati. Because of these stories, they stand out more as realistic characters, possibly because stories do just that. They allow you to engage with a historical character who, dare I say it, may have been fictional. And it does so in a different way to a character whose existence is supported in part by buildings. Of course, that's not to say buildings don't have this effect. If you visit some ruins and you can definitively link them to someone or something, you get a connection. But in the case of Ancus, what do we have? Neither the Tullianum or Ostia can be confidently associated with him. Indeed, it's only plausible to make a case for the Tullianum, and today the association is largely with St Peter. Purely from my own perspective, Ancus seems to have been required to exist, rather than exist and needed to be accounted for. Consider the series of kings up until this point. You have the founder, the peacemaker, and the warrior. Then up stands Ancus, who is clothed in hand-me-down narratives. His most original act, the assassination and cover-up of Tullus, isn't original. The theme of vengeance and cover-up itself borrowed from Romulus. Then there's the fighting with the surrounding tribes. Again, not exactly groundbreaking and very familiar by the 1st century BCE audience. Then we have his big endeavours, Ostia and the Tullianum. The irony here is that by fixing his reign to these tangible things, it's easier to discredit them. After all, stories are nebulous and far more flexible. By nature, we're often hunting for the truth about them, which gives them a sort of free pass. If you have a structure and can accurately date it to a time after Ancus, well, that's disproven the link completely. The retrospective construction applied to Ancus fosters a sense that later historians didn't really know what to do with him. This isn't unique to Ancus by any means. Following the death of Aeneas, Livy and Dionysus realised they had to get to Romulus, who lived several generations after Aeneas had died. What followed was a roll call of characters with the finger pressed firmly on the forward button, and yes, I cover this in my Foundation of Rome episode. With all of this said, this is just my response. I don't know what the Romans made of Ancus, perhaps he was more popular than I think him to be. If we hold the story of the Roman kings as just that, an attempt by Rome at a much later point to backfill its history, then Ancus has been given the horrible middle slot. The story of the Roman kings is, after all, a story about a political system which fails. Ancus has no great role to play in this other than being needed to get to the next king, and this is evident in his reign. One tale I deliberately left out was how the next king came to be. To use a modern term, the king following Ancus somewhat photobombs his reign, and that sums him up in a way, the king who built Rome's first bridge being used as one. 
Ancus died in 617 BCE. He'd reigned for just over 20 years, and we're down to our last three kings. And I'll continue with the fifth in my next podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. The upcoming weeks are a tad busy, so I hope to have something out by the end of March, but it might be early April. Up until then, check out my website, ancientblogger.com, as I'll be putting something up on there about my recent visit to the Troy exhibition at the British Museum. Spoiler alert, it's a lot of photos, but some of them are quite good. Well, I think they are. As ever, if you like what you heard, then please review if the platform you're listening to this on allows you to do so. Oh, and you can say hi to me on Twitter, Ancient Blogger, or find me on Instagram, where I'm also Ancient Blogger. Till next time, take care and keep safe.